This morning we're going to be in James chapter 2. James chapter 2. Go ahead and turn over there if you have a Bible. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, I want to offer you one of the Bibles that's placed uh, at the center of each aisle. Uh, We'd love to offer you that Bible as a gift. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, we want you to have one. And we want to talk to you about what's there. So go ahead and take it with you. Uh, Let us know that you've taken it so that we can uh, talk to you about what's there. If you're interested in that or just take it. We'd love it to be our gift to you. And um, we want to talk to you about who Jesus is if you're not familiar with him and what God has said to us in the Bible. This morning we're talking about a section of the Bible uh, that was written, one of the earliest things written after Jesus left the earth. So this was written by a close associate of Jesus, maybe even Jesus' brother. And the point of this letter, the letter of James, is to try to help early Christians figure out what it looks like to live in the world and to relate to one another in light of who Jesus is. It was still so new at the time. Jesus had just left. They were still trying to figure out what Jesus meant for how they treated one another. This letter's all about that. It's all about the, the changes that Christ means. If we get him, if we internalize who he is and what he's done, the changes that will mean for our on-the-ground lives, for the twists and turns that each day and each week brings to us, for the way that we relate to one another. One of the things I said early on in the series, a couple of three weeks ago, was that one of James' favorite themes is to talk to us about the effect of Jesus on the way we treat each other in community. That when faith gets internalized, it changes not just our own relationship to God. It's not a private thing in the way that we often think of it instinctively. It's a very public thing. That when genuine faith takes root in a person's life, they don't treat other people the same way. This is the first, where we come this morning, James chapter 2, is the first example of that. The first extended example of what kind of community should take shape when Jesus is at the center of it. And the specific thing that James puts on our radar this morning is what he labels as a problem. The problem of partiality. Partiality. What I mean by that is a division in relationships that's based on preference for some people over other people. It's pretty much that simple. Partiality, as James is going to talk about it today, is a preference in your relationships, a division, rather, in your relationships that's based on a preference that you have for some people over other people. The text that we're going to look at this morning is the first 13 verses of James chapter 2, and it breaks down pretty easy. I want to read it in just a second, but I want to go ahead and put this on your radar so you can see it as we move through it. In the first verse of the chapter, James gives us his main point, like a good preacher. He states it up front, then he unpacks it. So he gives us that main point about partiality in verse 1. Then he gives us one of his great illustrations of partiality. Verses 2 to 4 illustrate what he says in verse 1. And then in verses 5 to 13, that last section, he gives us a list of reasons that partiality has no place among people who get who Jesus is and who are building their life together around Jesus. So we want to walk through the text using those steps. We want to start with learning to recognize where partiality shows up, using James' analogy for us and trying to imagine it here in our, in our church as well. And then we want to look at why partiality is so dangerous, following through his reason starting in verse 5. Now, now first things first, I want to begin by reading this text that we're going to consider this morning. And I'm going to ask you to stand with me, if you would, in honor of God's word while we read from James chapter 2, the first 13 verses. This is the word of the Lord. 
My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you're called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. We're going to start with where partiality shows up. That's James' first concern for us here in the second chapter. Mentioned earlier, the, the first verse states the theme. Show no partiality as you hold the faith. In our Lord Jesus Christ. Partiality should not coexist with faith in Jesus. But what's he talking about when he raises this issue of partiality? And where can we see it? Where can we recognize it? The word for partiality, word that so, so my translation translates partiality, a word in Greek that was basically made up by the New Testament writers who were trying to represent a word from the Hebrew that they grew up on. The word, if you, if you were to translate it literally, instead of using the word partiality, it would be something like receiving the face. That's, what they, that's how they built it in Greek. Don't receive the face while you have faith in Jesus. It's an odd phrase, but I think the point is, is clear. The, the point is that making distinctions, it, that showing preference for some people over other people based on external things, receiving the face, based on what you see, on the face that someone presents, that making distinctions based on that can't coexist with genuine faith in Jesus. But James doesn't just leave us here. He gives us one of the first of his really vivid illustrations of what he's trying to talk about. He's a good preacher. He's trying to help it come to life. So he imagines a scenario. He builds a word, a picture for us here. Imagine that you're in your weekly gathering 
You've come together to hear from the Bible, to sing songs, to fellowship and encourage one another. And two people walk in unexpectedly from the back. The ushers back there. Placed there to make sure that if visitors come, they're welcomed appropriately. Imagine that most of the people in this gathering are probably fairly poor. Most early Christians were. That they didn't often see people with any power or influence come to faith. That was pretty rare at that time. Now imagine you're in that gathering and in walks a man who's obviously rich. That's wearing fine clothes and jewelry. He's got bling. He's making it clear to everyone who's looking at him what kind of bank account he has. Now imagine behind him, in comes a person in rags. Maybe smelling of the street. A person that isn't going to add much stability financially to the congregation. That certainly won't raise its profile in the city. It certainly won't be able to help anyone else who's there get ahead. Imagine those two people come in and the usher instinctively says to the rich man, here, this seat, right down here. You can see great from up here. Music won't be too loud or too quiet. It'll be just right in this spot. You sit here where everyone will see that we have honored you in the way that our culture demands. This was a time when, when things like wealth and poverty showed up in the way people were treated just as a, a matter of course, even in ways different from today. They, they deferred to wealth in that time. It was just expected. And to the poor man, the same usher says, we've got a spot over here for you, over there on the side. Or maybe even, maybe even worse, maybe you know, the, the chairs are full. We want to leave a few extras in case some other visitors come in. Would you mind? Why don't you just sit here on the floor by my feet? Now, James says, Haven't you made distinctions among yourselves from evil motives? Haven't you made yourself judge of who deserves attention and affection based on your selfish desire to get something from those people? It's not hard to imagine this sort of thing happening in parts of the world today, maybe places that you visited where rich and poor is, has a rigid difference to it, where it's attached to honor and shame in ways that it might not even be in, in our culture. We've seen stuff like this in the history of our country for sure. If you ever have toured some colonial churches, for example, especially if they're churches in places where, um, where a lot of the, the, the powerful early leaders of the country live. So if you've been to D.C., some of the old churches around D.C., or um, even if you go to, I think it's downtown Presbyterian Church here, you can see nameplates on the, the pews for people like George Washington or Andrew Jackson. This is where he sits. I grew up in the deep south, south Alabama, and in the, the, among the few existing church buildings from the early 1800s, there's a couple of them, but not, not many, the ones that are there, they still have on them separate doors, one for white participants in the congregation, one for black, the slaves. And they would have, those doors would have led to separate seating areas, a gallery set apart for those who were slaves, and main floor seating for those 
You were not. But I think actually our biggest challenge here is, is, to, is to not allow ourselves to dodge the challenge of James to us in this text because we're meeting in a rented space sitting on uncomfortable chairs from the 70s and 80s and by and large aren't made up of the rich and powerful of our city? How would James challenge us? The principle James is pointing us to here is bigger and broader than any single example. He's talking to all of us. And he's speaking to our tendency. Here it is. He's speaking to all of our tendency to size people up and to seek people out based on what we see, based on appearances. It's not hard to come up with examples. We start where James does, with economic examples. And I don't mean, I I think it's unlikely that, that any one of you here serving on the greeter's team would ever do what James describes here, right? Someone comes in who's rich and you take them and sit right up here on the front. I mean, nobody sits up here anyway. It's me. You're not likely to do it as it's, as, it's, as it's described here. But think about this. How many of your relationships thrive because you enjoy, for example, the same restaurants? the same travel destinations, the same clothing or entertainment that wouldn't be affordable for someone with less money than you have? Let me reframe that question. Let me come at it a different different way. How many of your relationships are thriving right now apart from the ability to eat at similar restaurants or take similar trips or buy similar clothes or build similar houses? It could be that this is a subtle way of showing partiality. Not so obvious as avoiding people altogether on purpose, but not proactively making sure that your friendships, your relationships, especially in the church, include people who don't have the same amount of money that you do. Think about age. Sometimes our partiality is age-based. It's another one of those appearances, another opportunity to receive the face. How important is it to you that you're connecting with people in the same stage of life that you're in? Listen, listen, don't, don't hear me wrong here, okay? It is incredibly valuable and even important to have friendships with people who are where you are, especially with Christians who are doing their best to be faithful where they are and can help you learn to be faithful where you are in the challenges and opportunities of your particular place in life. That's important as part of your portfolio of friendship, so to speak. But how important is it to you? Have you, have you ever thought about the fact that that is actually an external thing as far as God is concerned? It's another appearance as far as God is concerned. It's not essential to who you are as far as God is concerned. And making that essential is incompatible with faith in Jesus. Here's another example. One last example. One author called this social ability. 
ability to thrive in social settings, basically to be popular instead of an outsider. To be among those who get it. To be among those who, who people are naturally drawn to. That are easy to talk to. That talk about things that most people want to talk about. That wear clothes that fit the norm. Let me put it differently again. How many of your friendships include people that you aren't naturally drawn to and others aren't either? To people who maybe do talk too much or talk about strange things and conversation is just kind of awkward. To people who wear clothes that aren't even from last season. Colors that aren't quite right, you know. 10, 15 years ago's shades of color. People who tuck their shirts in when they should leave them out. Or vice versa. Listen, whatever, wherever it might show up, the point is that if you're not inviting people like that, or even, even talking to such persons, if you're not inviting them into your life, or even talking to them, probably a sign that you're showing partiality. That you're preferring some people to other people for some reason. Might be a good experiment for you, even this morning. After the service, we love to hang out and talk to one another. How often do you find yourself, or maybe, maybe let me frame it different. This morning, after the service, you'll have an opportunity to look around the room and to see someone that you normally wouldn't talk to. And to show honor to them by going up to them and talking to them. Now, because I've just asked you to do that, all of you are going to be really hypersensitive about who's talking, choosing to talk to you. Well, I've never talked to him before, and he's been here three years. I'm the one he's been avoiding. Uh, I don't want you to think that. I do want you to take this as, as something to consider, all right? After church is a great chance to show no partiality. And one of the best ways to do that would be to talk to somebody you probably wouldn't normally talk to unless both of you have Jesus in common. And that leads me to the second point. All right, so we've seen where partiality might show up. The, most of this text is about explaining to us, helping us see why partiality is dangerous. Why partiality is dangerous. This is verses 1 and then 5 to 13. I want to talk through his case, James' case, for why partiality is dangerous and unacceptable for Christians. Okay, And I want to start in the first verse just because it alludes to something that is foundational to all the other things. In the first verse, James says, Brothers, show no partiality while you hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. What he's doing at the top of his whole conversation is directing our attention to Jesus and identifying Jesus' glory as the glue that holds everything together, as the power or energy that drives everything that happens, as the primary consideration for all of those who are genuinely with him. If you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then his glory will be your primary concern in how you handle your relationships in the community. So the first danger of partiality is that it's dishonoring to Jesus. 
I'm going to look through three reasons partiality is dangerous. The first one is that it is dishonoring to Jesus. I think you can think about the, the, the first four verses here where Jesus' glory gets introduced in the first verse and then the illustration comes in verses two to four. You can think about that as, as two alternate glories. The glory that is Jesus and the glory of man. The glory of the fine clothes and the fancy rings. The glory of the honor that comes to people who visibly are a cut above. James is pointing us to two kinds of glory that can't coexist. You can have one or you can have the other. And the reason they can't coexist is that if your identity is based on Christ, if His glory is what you want out of your life and out of your relationships, if what He has done for you it's fundamental to who you are, to how you understand yourself, then, well, you're just going to have different expectations for what you need from other people. Here's what I mean. Maybe you feel like you really need someone now who's in the same life stage that you are. To go back to an earlier example. Maybe someone who's had a similar family history to you, who can understand where you're coming from. Maybe someone who's had a similar struggle with addiction. Maybe someone who's had a similar experience of divorce. Some sort of life experience that binds you together. There are fantastic support groups that that come up around these experiences in life, and they should. It's important. But what James is pointing us to here is, is a community that aims at something different. A community that makes the point that the thing that's most fundamental to who I am is my connection to Christ. The thing that's most fundamental to my identity is the identity that he gives me. So, to put it another way, there's two things that are always going to be true of you and of anyone else who walks in that back door. There's going to be two things that are always true. You're going to have Jesus in you, and you're going to have a Jesus available to you. Jesus in you, Jesus available to you. When anybody walks through that door, no matter how different they might be from from you and your background, your experiences, your age, when they come in that door, if they're a Christian, they have Jesus in them, you're going to be attracted to that. You're going to want that. You're going to want to attach yourself to them. If they're not a Christian, they're going to have Jesus available to them, and you're going to want to make sure he gets there. You're going to want to make sure they connect with the Christ who has transformed your life and your identity. Those two things are going to be there for everybody. Either Jesus is in them or he's available to them. And that's what you want because Jesus is defining who you are. So we're naturally drawn to people who are like us or people we want to be like, people in whom we see ourselves, people in whom we see our ideal selves, our possible selves. But who's naturally drawn to people who aren't like you and that you don't want to be like? Who's naturally drawn to people who aren't like you, to people you don't want to be like? Friends, it's your posture towards those people that shows whether you've got faith in or prioritize the glory of Jesus or are walking in the light of the glory of man. And it cuts the other way. 
if you're, if you're staying aloof from others in Christian community because you feel like nobody gets you, you're either saying that no one gets Jesus, that no one understands Jesus, or you're saying that there's something more fundamental to Jesus, more fundamental than Jesus to who you are. You see that? Either what you're saying is nobody gets Jesus, which you probably wouldn't want to say, or what you're saying is that there's something more fundamental to who I am than Jesus and what he offers. And that attitude is just not worthy of the Lord of glory. So the first reason partiality is dangerous to us is that it is dishonoring to Jesus. It takes the glory of Christ from the center of who we are as individuals and as a community, and it replaces it with the glory of man. There's another reason. The second reason partiality is dangerous is that it disagrees with God. When we show partiality towards some people over other people, we're disagreeing with God. Let me show you where this comes out. This is in verse 5. James says, Brothers, hasn't God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? He ties his claim that we shouldn't show partiality back to who God is, to his character, to his purposes, to what he's building in his kingdom. God isn't impressed by what impresses us. He doesn't see what we see. He doesn't value what we value. In fact, one of the things that comes through all through the Bible, from beginning to end, is that God loves to turn upside down the things that we expect, the things that we value. He loves to do things in a way that shows He is God and we are not God. That His ways are not our ways. Because, the Old Testament tells us, Samuel... Man sees what's on the outside, but the Lord looks at the heart. We need to be careful here. We need to be really careful here with what James is saying. He is not saying that God chooses only those who are poor or all of those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be part of his kingdom and that the rich have no place. He's not saying that. Elsewhere in James, he refers to those who are rich and part of the Christian community. What he is saying is that there's a consistent pattern in the way that God treats people, where God loves to show himself strong in the lives of those who know that they're weak. He loves to deliver and to work through those who recognize they can't do without him. It's all over the Bible. We don't have time to pull out a bunch of the examples, but if you're familiar with the stories of the Bible, you'll know. Just think about how many times there were births that were significant to Israel's history given to people who had no children. Or, or think about his choice of David. When he chooses David as the, the most important king in the history of Israel, as the one who represents the coming Messiah more clearly than anybody else. When he chooses David, he chooses a family that wasn't notorious. And he chooses the, the one who was young and weak and small compared to his brothers, the one who wasn't handsome in the way that they were, the one that no one would have picked. That's who God chose because God wants to show it's him. Think about the fact that he chose an unwed mother as the one who would bring into the world the Messiah upon whom the hopes of all the world would hang. This is the kind of God we're talking about here. This God doesn't show honor to the same ones that the world honors. And you, Christians, James is saying, you would show honor 
to the rich? Don't you realize that when you favor those who are favored by the world, you're siding with the world against God? God's God's grand purpose in all of human history is to save for himself a people confounding the expectations of the wise and the powerful so that no one can boast but those who boast in the Lord. His grand purpose means upending the pretense of each one of us to be like God. To show that no one can boast in their own strength, wisdom, riches, power. And every time we show partiality towards the powerful or the wealthy or the popular or the pleasant, we side with what God is going to expose and we dishonor what God will honor. That's verse 6. You have dishonored the poor man, the one who God has made an heir of his kingdom. You're disagreeing with God. That's the second reason it's dangerous. Here's the last. Partiality in Christian community. When we, love, when we show preference for one kind of person over another kind of person. Or one individual over another one. We're walking in some dangerous territory because not only are we dishonoring Jesus, not only are we disagreeing with the, the perspective or opinion of God, but we're disobeying the law. And we're risking, we are inviting God's judgment on us. That's what James says in, beginning uh, in verse 8 and through verse 13. James says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, then you're doing well. And what James is saying there, I think, is that it's possible to think you're obeying that royal law, probably called royal law because it's God's law, the law of his kingdom, or even because it has a priority of place in the, the Old Testament law as, as a kind of summary of what all the individual things are, are meant to do. Uh, all the, the, the nitty-gritty laws that are there are meant to help us love our neighbors well. So it has a, a pride of place in the law. What James is saying is that it's possible to think you're obeying that law, to love your neighbor as yourself, but not be. If you really obey that law, great, you're doing well, you're okay. His implication is that when you show partiality, you're not. You're not fulfilling this law, but breaking it, according to verse 9. I think the reason he goes here, the reason he goes to this love your neighbor as yourself command is that he, he is sensitive to what we often do. And that is, that's justify the preference we show to some people over others based on our desire to love them. And there's a sense in which we do show love to one another, even when it's someone we would normally prefer. Showing honor to the rich or the powerful person, in the, in the example he's already given us, it is a loving thing to do in one sense. 
and to expand it, some of the other examples we gave, it could be love that draws people to each other because they're similar or attractive in some way. There is a kind of love there. All cliques in human relationships are justified based on some kind of love. Sometimes that love might be deep and sacrificial. But what James is warning us of is that there is plenty of love that isn't honoring to God, that isn't acceptable to Him. Just chalking it up to love is not enough. There are forms of love that do not honor Him, that He will not endorse, and even forms of love that He will judge. A love that's restrictive, a love that only goes out towards people that are like us or that we want to be like, that we stand to get something from. Here's the basic problem with that kind of love. It's ultimately just a way of loving ourselves. Because what we like in the other person is a reflection of us. What we want from the other person is some sort of way to get ahead for us. So that sort of love, even if it's love by one name, is ultimately not rooted in love for God, in a desire to honor and represent Him well in the world. When, when that law that James is citing was first written, it comes after a command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. It's a verse that families at Trinity are memorizing together this, this month, trying to help our kids point them towards the centrality of God to all of our life. I think a lot of times that command... To love God first is disconnected for us in our experience from what it is to love one another well. And if you want to have a love for one another that really honors and represents a love for God, it's got to be based not on what you like about them or expect to get from them, but based on the fact that they're made in His image, based on the fact that they're recipients of the same grace you are, that they need the same Savior, that that same Savior is in them, even now changing them into His image. That's beautiful to you. It's more fundamental to you than anything else you might like about them or hope to get from them. Any love other than that is ultimately just a love for yourself. Love is not all that matters, friends. The object of our love, the foundation for our love, that matters. Even more. It's essential. I think what James is doing here is echoing some of the teaching of Jesus. One of the things that experts on James always come back to is how influenced he is by some of the same teachings that show up in the Gospels of the New Testament. So the earliest accounts of Jesus' life and teaching, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that there's all sorts of echoes to the teaching that's recorded there in James's letter. We believe he was a close friend, an associate, maybe even a brother of Jesus. He would have heard it all firsthand. And here, I think he's pointing us to some of the things Jesus often said. It was Jesus who, Luke chapter 6 records, tells us that, that the mark of genuine love is a love for your enemies. He tells them, even the tax collectors and sinners love people who love them. You think you love people who love you and you're, you're okay? Like you're fulfilling this law to love your neighbor as yourself? You're not. Who doesn't love people who love them? You'll love your enemies if you're with me. And then Jesus fleshes this out even more in Luke chapter 10. There he tells the the familiar story of the Good Samaritan. The question there was a question very much like what James is dealing with. Who's my neighbor? Who do I have to love if I want to fulfill this law? 
to love your neighbor as yourself. And you'll know Jesus starts out with people that would have been most likely to love this man who was wounded on the side of the road. He was passed over by the religious leaders who represented the people from which this man came. Who is it that stops and helps him? Well, it's a racial and ethnic other. Someone he wouldn't have even wanted to have dinner with. Someone who had nothing to gain from caring for this man. No attachment of family. No responsibility of tribe. A man who had nothing but access to what this person needed to survive. That Samaritan man. Care for him. And Jesus says, there's your neighbor. So if you want to love your neighbor as yourself, you're going to have to work a little harder than the loves that come easy to you. A love that's partial is not a love that fulfills the law. And if I had to hang a banner over this, James's point here for us, over really this whole, this whole text, and, and put words to our prayer for what our community here and our church would be like, is that you, friends, when you're with Jesus, you lose the right to be picky about who you're going to love. If you, you don't have to be with Jesus. There are other ways to go with your life. But if you want to be with Jesus, you lose the right to be picky about who you're going to love. There is much that rides on this issue. Life and death, James tells us, hang in the balance on this issue. Because what James says in verses 9 to 13 is that for you to, for you to fall short of the love of neighbor that Jesus had in mind by your partiality towards some people over others, then you've broken the whole law. And judgment is coming. The law is not... Here's, here's a good image for, that one author gave for this. The law, law keeping is not what we often think of it as, where, 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 you, can, where you can sort of keep part of it and, and not keep others. It's sort of a balancing act where you hope by the end of your life the good things, the obedience, outweighs the disobedience. I wonder if that's how you thought of your own standing in God's eyes as you make your way through your life. It, what James is saying is consistent with the whole Bible. That's not how God looks at things. No, the, the law isn't like a heap of stones from which you can take one and, and the heap remains. The integrity is still there. No, the law is a lot more like a, 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 a plate glass window where if you hit it at one spot, no matter where it is, it shatters the whole thing. It's all or nothing. And there isn't one of us here this morning that hasn't been guilty of the partiality James is condemning in this text. So thanks be to God, there's another allusion here in this passage, another allusion to Jesus' teaching. In verse 13, he talks about judgment as being without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. Jesus said similar things in Matthew chapter 5, for example. Blessed are the merciful, they receive mercy. There is an intimate connection between the mercy we show and the mercy we receive. If you don't show love that 
is directed towards people of all kinds. What you're saying is that you have not received the free, merciful, gracious, profligate love of God for you. That you haven't internalized it and taken it on so that it just affects how you interact with the world. So that it changes what's attractive to you. Changes what you want for your relationships. There's a deficit there in how much you have actually experienced mercy. So judgment is coming. What breaking the law means is judgment unless Jesus stands for us. And if he does stand for us, as he will for you if you trust in him this morning. If he does stand for us, then what happens is that his mercy starts to seep into our consciousness. It starts to change our hearts. It starts to flow out in the way that we love one another. His mercy starts to create mercy in us as we experience community with one another. It's inevitable, James is saying. Mercy always triumphs over judgment, over God's judgment of us if we're in Christ, and over our judgments of each other. Mercy triumphs over the judgments that we make in an instant and that can separate us for years. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And if you have tasted God's mercy for you, then you will show mercy to one another. So our only hope, friends, for the kind of community James is describing, the kind that we're praying for, the kind that we want to see characterized the next five years of our life together, our only hope is if our hearts get captured by the mercy that Jesus has shown to us. So let's pray that together now, this morning. Father, we know how, te- how tempted we are. We know how often we give in to partiality. It's everywhere. It's just ingrained in us. It's ugly. We don't like it. But it's, it's just true. We don't know what to do about that except to pray to you, Father. To pray that your spirit would help us to see it when it happens. That your spirit would help us to hate it when it happens. That your spirit would help us be more aware than we have been of opportunities to show love that crosses boundaries that would normally separate us. We pray for hearts and minds that are sensitive to every opportunity we have to love because of Christ, to his glory to love with a love that is founded on our love for you. We pray that you would make us aware of every chance we've got to show that kind of love. Forgive us and protect us from our apathy, from being carried along by what comes naturally to us and not recognizing our great need for transformation. And build in us now, we pray, hearts that will lead to a community of mercy that's only explainable by anyone who sees it in light of the fact that Christ has come, that he has lived, that he has died, that he has risen again, and that he now intercedes for the people of his promise, making them into his image. We want glory for that Jesus. Help us for his sake, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.